This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I'm going to play a recording from last Monday's live salon, where our guest was the creator of a new documentary titled Journeys to the Edge of Consciousness. Now I'm putting a link to uh, the movie's trailer in today's program notes, and you may want to click over to that short video right now so that you uh, will have a little better idea of what we're talking about. While the film features three psychedelic journeys that have had a profound impact on our world, it also includes interviews with a dozen psychedelic elders who are still with us. The three featured psychonauts are Alan Watts, Timothy Leary, and Aldous Huxley, and they are featured uh, through readings from their books, and these readings, which are backed up by some wonderful animated graphics and original music, while they're interspersed with comments from live interviews. And if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you're already familiar with some of the people who are interviewed, such as uh, Dennis McKenna, Amanda Fielding, Rick Doblin, and Graham Hancock. Now, after my live salon conversation, I went back and watched his film once again, and I realized then that uh, while Watts, Leary, and Huxley are well known to us here in the Psychedelic Salon, there will also be some new fellow saloners who uh, may be hearing about these men for the first time. So after the interview with Rob, I'm going to play a short recording from earlier podcasts that featured each of these three men. And uh, hopefully this will give you a little better idea of what pioneers they were and how relevant their ideas are yet today. Now, here's our live salon. I think we're good now. Okay, I think we are good. Okay, and, and believe it or not, it's only one minute after our regu- our scheduled start time, so <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. That's uh, uh, Anyhow, uh, welcome here, Rob, that uh, this is our, our first uh, uh, Greenwich Time live salon, so uh, you're inaugurating a new service, and I, I thought we'd pick up a few people in Europe. You know, we've had people in Russia and, and places like that join us before, but we've got some uh, old-timers that are here all the time, so... Uh, it should be interesting. So uh, uh, welcome to the, to the salon. And, and I learned about you from Dennis Berry, who is the woman who re- really preserved the, ter- or the, the uh, Timothy Leary archive. So how, let, let's start with Dennis, and then we'll uh, rewind and, and get your story, too. How, how did you and Dennis make contact? So um, once I had, yeah, and we, we, I guess we will need a rewind, but once I had decided on which short stories I wanted to include in the film um, and narrowed that down to, to the three that you see in the film, um, one of those was a chapter from Timothy Leary's High Priest, which is a fantastic book, incredible book. Um, I'm a huge fan of Leary's writing. I, I think that he captures something of the psychedelic experience on page in a way that few others have for me and with a a real dry wit and humor. Um, So I had this material from uh, High Priest, which I wanted to use. And I looked up, you know, who was looking after Leary's uh, estate and that was Dennis. So um, I got in touch and this was in 2015, I believe. 
and I got in touch and we had a, a transatlantic phone call, uh, which was quite exotic for me. I don't have many of those. And it's great to be talking to you now, Lorenzo. And um, yeah, I, I, I approached Dennis and I told her my intentions and what I wanted to do and asked for her permission to use some excerpts from Leary's book. And she was very supportive and uh, more than happy. Well, I'm, uh, Dennis is going to be here in a live salon uh, uh, either this month or next. She was in India when she put me in touch with you, and I think she's come back now. But uh, I, I want to uh, be sure that, that uh, people realize that she, she really is an important person in preserving uh, the legacy here. So, so we'll rewind now. And, and what happened, uh, so that people know, is, is Dennis has been a longtime friend of mine. And... Uh, she got a hold of me and says, you really ought to uh, look at this trailer and get a hold of Rob Harper. He's got a really great film going. <laughs> and, you know, I, I get these, uh, these notices from time to time, but usually it's, it's, uh, it's something that, that's uh, in, just people are still thinking about it and getting going and, and yours is, is completed now. So uh, how, did, how did you uh, get involved in psychedelics to begin with? And, and I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to uh, mute some of these uh, people because your background noise uh, kind of gets in here, guys. Uh, but how did you get into psychedelics? And then what made you decide to spend your, your free time and your money to create a documentary? Well, that's exactly what it was, <laughs> Lorenzo. Um, so I'm, I'm in my mid-30s now. So about six years ago, I was in my late 20s. And I had a, um, a very powerful um, experience of a, an expanded state of consciousness. And I wasn't particularly prepared for it. I wasn't at all spiritually aware or, you know, in touch with these sorts of things. And it, it really just, you know, one of the ways I describe it is like being on um, one of these internet maps and just clicking zoom out, zoom out, zoom out, zoom out, zoom out, zoom out, you know, until, um, until my everyday life and my everyday take on reality was pretty far gone, you know. Um, yeah, far, far gone in, in what way now do you mean? Uh, well, planet Earth seemed like a long way, way away <laughs> at that point. And all of my usual daily concerns and worries and I guess, you know, what Leary describes, the kind of chessboard you know, everyday life stuff that, that one can spend a lot of one's time and energies worrying about suddenly seemed pretty inconsequential. And I was given a new, offered a new perspective. And um, with it came a sense that there was a lot, lot more to, to this life and to reality than I had previously thought. Um, and so I came back from the experience um, a bit like Leary after his, his first, in his case, LSD experience in, in the movie um, with a lot of questions and a lot of what was that, you know, what, what just happened to me and how on earth do I integrate that into my takes perspective on the world and life and, and all the rest of it. So really the film has been a five-year journey of my own of kind of trying to make sense of, of that initial experience. And, um, you know, as is often the case in making a film, I had 
you know, I sort of had the privilege of approaching people like Gabor Mate and Dennis McKenna, um, Rick Doblin, and all the all the brilliant people in the film. And you know, sitting you know, down. Let me just interrupt you for a second, because yeah. you know, most everybody here, I'm sure, uh, right now, and is going to be hearing the the recording of this, has had a first time experience that was overwhelming, and you know, we all got into it different ways, etc. But and you know, we all get kind of evangelical at first, want to talk about it. But not many people get off with the dime and actually do something. What what uh, was the catalyst that prop prompted you to uh, tell the story on a, on a larger stage? Um, good question. Um, it's it just had to be done. The um, it's always, you know, it's been a, it's been a long, hard five years and um, it's been a real labor of love and a lot of hard sort of sacrifice along the way to get this thing done, as you said, in my spare time and on my own dime. Um, it just demanded really, it, the, I'm, I'm a trained filmmaker. Um, it's what I do. And so this just demanded it of me. This well, just said. That that explains a lot because this thing, this film, is just pro so professionally done. And you know, I thought, you know, you couldn't just be sitting in a like I am in the corner of my bedroom doing this stuff. You had some some uh, some good friends and some powerful uh, uh, equipment to do this. Do uh, you want to talk about the film a little bit about uh, uh, the concept of it and how you put it together? Yeah, sure. Um... So yeah, the film is the film's called Journeys to the Edge of Consciousness, and I guess I think my inspiration for that was kind of the um, somehow maybe kind of nineteen forties, nineteen fifties comic books. You know, it was I pictured a big booming announcer saying Journeys to the Edge of Consciousness. You know, and it's I, I think my starting point was like, you know, um, we've reached the twentieth century or now the twenty first century. And all of these far distant continents and oceans and, you know, the times when you sailed off in a boat and you might fall off the edge of the world. You know, humanity, we've sort of done that exploration. We've Google mapped everything now. You know, it's all recorded. And so I figured the next great frontier is this sort of internal exploration that Leary and, and others were doing. Um, I'd never seen, I'd never seen anything like this before i don't know if you have lorenzo but in terms of the format i chose um having three three animated stories interspersed with studio interviews comments let, me, on, let me add here yeah. that the animation is brilliant it's it's uh it reminded me of uh richard linklater's uh, waking life in 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 a sense that uh, who who did the animation how did you get that done um the guy who did the animation's name is henry lamborn and he's an incredibly talented man. Uh, he single-handedly animated not only 45 minutes of animation in the film, but every background of every interview has an animated moving right. background. So this guy's basically single-handedly an animated every, nearly every frame of the film. That's just um, awesome. And, and, and the animation is brilliant. And the animations in the, the interviews with live... Uh, actor or not actor Dennis McKenna not an actor but uh, th that really held a lot of interest it's like you said it's not something I'd seen before 
Yeah, and it, it was a real gamble. It was like, I'm going to try this thing and I really hope it works. And so I made, we made one animation and we shot a couple of interviews and we put them together and we said, yeah, okay, I think this is going to work. And so we did more animation and shot more interviews. And yeah, the thing was kind of pieced together bit by bit over, as I said, the last five years. Well, you know, you sent me a link to, to see it, and I, I wrote you back with all caps and ex exclamation points that uh, I don't often do that. Th this thing really touched me. Of course, you know, uh, here in the salon, we played a lot of talks by, by Leary and, and Huxley, a few, and, and uh, Watts as well. And, and then, of course, there's Dennis McKenna, and there's Rick Doblin, and uh, 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 who else? Uh, we had several other people in there that we have here in the salon. So I, I, uh, I really uh, related to it. I think everybody here in the salon is going to as well. I hope some of them have uh, you know, clicked over that link to see the trailer already, too, because uh, the trailer gives a pretty good feel for uh, what the film's like, I think. Yeah. No, thanks, Lorenzo. And, you know, what you wrote to me, it was uh, really touched me. Thank you. I, you know, I'm very aware of your work and your place in, in this scene. And it really meant a lot to, to read that. Well, you know, I've, I've watched I've watched a lot of these these movies and documentaries. And, and sometimes, you know, they just don't quite hold me long enough. But uh, this one, uh, actually, I'm going to go back and watch it again. It really, uh, you know, there's so much I've missed when I was uh, watching it the first time. I'm going to mute a couple people here on the phone uh as background noise comes in no the the uh the whole experience uh just when you're starting to get into a, a groove then there'll be another animation or there'll be another interview and uh, it's sort of like a terrence mckenna talk you know with the audience coming up and saying well what about this what about that and uh, of course the three people you chose were were excellent uh the publishers uh, New World were, were were very understanding and accommodating, and it it was all done through them. But yeah, we got we got the blessing of of the Watts family and um, and and the Huxley family too. So it, you know it was an ongoing process. But uh, yeah, really pleased to, to have everyone on board and um, to have been able to share all of their words. But yeah, you know I, I read the Joyous Cosmology, and what a book! What an incredible book! Um, and to me, it felt like such a kind of response to Huxley's Doors of Perception. You know, it's like I can, I can almost feel Watts answering Huxley or bouncing back off back to Huxley. It's an incredible book. One of my biggest challenges was what to cut out, you know. Yeah, tell us about that. But what, what all did wind up on the cutting room floor? Oh, tons, loads, lots and lots. Um, gosh, can I even remember? Um, I can't, no, I can't. Well, there was a Ram Dass story. There was a Ram Dass story that I really wanted to include. And I was in touch with his people. And um, it was just a question of, of making it manageable. You know, and I think 90 minutes is a good length for a film. Right. And I think if you, if you start going much over two hours, you've really got to be the godfather, you know, to keep your audience yeah, I've, I've, take, I've taken a, a, a couple courses in screenwriting, so I, I know about the magic numbers and all and all. And, and, and uh, now, now, do you have a, any follow-ons uh, planned for this? Is this got momentum that's pulling you forward? Yeah, well, you know, what's happening at the moment, you know, we released in September 2019. And um, at the moment, I mean, a lot of my time and energy is just stewarding the film on out into the world. And... Um, 
you know, I'm really grateful for you for giving giving me a platform to talk about this. You know, we don't have any big uh, big media machines behind us, any big distribution plans. It's all happening by word of mouth, and uh, every day I'm getting contacted by people and wanting to put on kind of uh, grassroots screenings. Um, we've had the film play in Sweden, uh, Australia, Austria, all over the UK, um, Argentina, North America. We've got Denmark coming soon. So it's really just, it's taken off. But just bit by bit, you know, I've had a, a medical student in Canada open up her apartment to have 20 friends over. And they all put $5 in the hat, you know, and she sent that to me. And at the other end of the scale, we had a 300-seat mega cinema in Stockholm, Sweden, packed out with people. So it's really what we're really relying on is people taking this on and seeing the value in the film and wanting to share it with their local community. And it's, it's, it's awesome what's happening. So if they if they if somebody wants to uh, do a screening, whether in their their home, their apartment, or a, a larger one, uh, how do they get in touch with you and and do this then? So if they go on to our website, which is www.journeysmovie.com. Journeys plural, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Journeys with a Y. Journeysmovie.com. Uh, they'll and they click organize a screening, and they'll they'll be able to be in touch with me. Um, and yeah, and we, we were just about to launch the German language version. We've had it translated. Um, and we're just about to launch the Romanian and the Hungarian subtitles as well. So again, people are contributing and off their own backs, translating the film. And it's really touching, actually, how, how enthusiastic people are to help get the film out there. And well, you know the the translation now. You're you're putting uh, German subtitles. You said Romanian, yeah, Hungarian. Because um, we have we have listeners. We've had people from Slovenia come into the uh, live salon here too. And uh, I don't know if anybody from Germany, but I know Russia has been here. So uh, this will reach people in other countries as well. And uh, I guess if they want their language uh, subtitled, they'll get a hold of you as well. Please do. Yeah, I'm I'm very much currently looking for someone. To, to translate the film into Japanese and Spanish and, and, and anyone else whose language I haven't mentioned, please get in touch. It's quite easy and fun to do. Well, you know, until he died uh, almost 10 years ago, my brother was the uh, uh, professor emeritus in the langu- uh, College of Language and Translation at the University of Granada. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, 10 years ago, I could have helped you out quite a bit with translations, but I, uh, unfortunately, he's gone now. So, uh, But what, what about uh, your other film work? What, what type of film work do you do, or do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Well, this is my first feature. So this, this is my first feature. And, you know, I'm just so pleased to have gotten to the other end of it. You know, it's, it's I do have that feeling that this is out there now. And, you know, I've kind of stuck my flag in the sand or whatever you want to say. You know, and I'm, I'm very proud to have done it in relation to this topic, you know, to psychedelics and this sort of development, this change of consciousness strikes me as in this quite troubled current world climate, perhaps the most important thing each of us can do is to take a long, hard look inside and see what's going on and what we perhaps need to uh, change or attend to. Um, 
Um, so my previous work um, made a lot of short documentaries. Um, I worked in the UK film and TV industry for some years. I've kind of I've filmed as a cameraman for most of the major UK broadcasters. Um, and I also teach. I'm also a visiting lecturer teaching uh, the next generation how to make documentaries. Now, do you have a, a link to some of the uh, documentaries you've done, like on Vimeo or YouTube or somewhere? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, if you'll send me that, I'll put it in the program notes for uh, today's podcast. Cool. Thanks, Lorenzo. That'd be and, awesome. Uh, I think that, that what you have put together in this film really is great background material for people who are just uh, getting into psychedelics one way or another, whether it's a, a lawyer who's going to have to defend somebody or whether it's a, a parent, their kids are getting into it, or whether it's, it's a kid who's teaching their parents about it. Uh, how, how did you come about your first experience? It obviously was uh, world changing for you. What, what, uh, how did that come about? You didn't just go to a rave and drop some acid at it, I assume. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, just on your first point, um, you know, that what you've just said is exactly it. I, I want this to be a resource potentially for people who maybe haven't yet had an experience and are planning to, and they want to know what they're letting themselves in for as much as one can um, but also yeah perhaps also something for them people to take to their families and say you know when I disappear off for a week and come back talking stuff you don't really understand give this a watch this might help you put that in context you know and one person at one of the recent screenings said um, I was at Oxford University last night screening the film there and doing the Q&A uh, here in England and um you know, one of the people in one of my audiences said this should be viewing in every school, you know. I agree. Someone else said someone else said in every psychology department. So I'd love to see the film be, you know, as widely used as possible for people as a resource. Um, as to my own personal experience, I'd rather not go into the, the details so publicly, if you don't mind, Lorenzo. So mo most of us are, are right there with you, so don't worry about that. <laughs> but maybe over a beer sometime, the two of us can talk about it. Right. That, uh, no, I, I just, uh, uh, I, I was uh, hoping it was some sort of a structured uh, event uh, of some kind because, uh, uh, it, you know, I, I've danced all night at raves on MDMA, and, and uh, I, I now agree with Terrence that if you want to, come down from a psychedelic experience, go where there's live music and dance, you know, <laughs> it's not the, the right environment, but, uh, you know, nonetheless, uh, we all have done uh, things like that. But I, I was thinking when I was watching your, your movie that, uh, how I wish that I'd had it when I was a parent, because, uh, I, I could have sat down with my kids and said, you know, let's talk about this war on drugs thing. Uh, because I knew my kids were experimenting and all, but we didn't have a convenient way to talk about it. And uh, this this movie here is a really good way. Uh, I'll tell you who I wish would see it would be politicians. You know, they really need to see the history of this and to understand that, like you said in the very beginning, Rob, that uh, we're at a, a really unique time in human history. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm not sure how it's all going to come out, but I think, as Terrence said, if, if we don't uh, support an increase in human consciousness, then what are we doing here, you know? And, uh, I think some of the answers are, are in, in uh, what we learn when we get out of the boxes that we've built around ourselves. 
Hell yes, hell yes. Uh, on Saturday, there was a, I was at another screening of the film and a guy from in the film, one of the interviewees called William Rowlandson, brilliant man, um, was talking. And I was talking to him and, you know, we were talking about our concerns about the recent election here in England where Boris Johnson's just gone back in um, with an overwhelming majority with this agenda to leave Europe and to separate ourselves off from the rest of the continent, which a lot of people are quite, half the country's quite very unhappy about. And, um, you know, the, the guy behind the scenes for Boris Johnson's campaign, a guy called Dominic Cummings, you know, we were talking about him and, and the sort of spell he was able to weave over people here in the UK. Um, and, you know, he, Will was talking and he said, you know, these people are magicians. These people are powerful magicians. And they're enchanting whole nations, you know, with their spells. And he, we, took, we got onto this film and, you know, I got thinking and I said, well, yeah, this is my, the best magic I could, I could put together in response. You know, this is my best attempt to weave a different narrative, to weave a different spell, other than the ones that are being pumped into people's living rooms. Exactly right. You know, and, and I really, you know, I, I used to be politically active. I was involved in the uh, Vietnam prisoner of war issue and I was very active for quite a few years until I, I finally burned out and, and <laughs> I'm no longer politically active at all. But I, I do uh, think that uh, the activism, rather than trying to change actors in a system that's totally broken, uh, you know, and, and uh, the U.S. Constitution is a is really worthless if we can't get rid of a, a insane child who's running everything. So, so I, I I really believe that the political activism has to be internal, like you just said. Uh, we have to, uh, you know, I have quit flying because. Uh, I can be green all year long. I don't have a car. You know, I, I try to be as green as I can. And yet one flight, and I take two years of my uh, goodness uh, away. And so, you know, I'm really working at these things, but I'm in a position where I can. Now, if you're in the working world and you're raising kids, things like that, it's, it's totally different. You have to find your own way within the environment you're in because, uh, you know, when you wake up, <laughs> it, you can't really just step out of the culture that you're in. You know, you have to uh, uh, change it at least with your friends, relatives, neighbors, coworkers like that. And uh, this particular film, I know there's a lot of uh, uh, little groups, uh, meetups and people like that that could get a lot out of screening this film. And uh, you can stream it, I think, from your website. Isn't it a... You, uh, it's a fee and, and it, does it stream or do you have to download it? Yeah, it's a stream, Lorenzo. It's, um, yeah, you can rent or buy it. If you buy it, you can watch it as many times as you like. You rent it, you watch it once. Uh, the link's on my website, journeysmovie.com, to, to do that. Um, there are links via both Vimeo and Amazon. People are welcome to use either, but please bear in mind, Vimeo give video producers a much fairer cut of the, sh of the profits. Right. So please bear that in mind when you're, when you're buying. That, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I use Vimeo for uh, my funny little things and all, but uh, I, I like Vimeo particularly because there's no ads. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, listen, uh, does, does anybody have uh, something they'd like to add here or uh, Kevin, you got something you want to say? I don't know. I was just going to say hello. It's been a while. 
<laughs> yeah, still on, most still of the people here know Kevin from the road, so it's good to see you not on the road, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, it's good not to be on the road. Um, I was just going to interject really quick. I, I had to kind of come and go. But, um, you know, the, the Denver Psychedelic Society, uh, they put on a, a movie every Monday night, um, some sort of psychedelic themed. Um, so I will make sure that they get in touch with you, Rob. Absolutely. Um, that's a, a, a big uh, theater they fill up every, every Monday. So I think this film would be wonderful for them. Thank um, you. So I'll definitely reach out to them, and that community is really strong. And uh, other than that, I just want to say hi to everybody. Rob, it was wonderful to meet you and hear your story, and can't wait to check out the movie. Thank you. Thank you. Much appreciated. Yeah, we're having a lot of a lot of the screenings are coming from psychedelic societies. So, um, Lorenzo, you mentioned Portland, and is it Kevin? You mentioned uh, uh, Denver. Yep. Fantastic, because they already have these these networks, you know. And it's just working out perfectly for everybody. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Thank you. How um, did your psychedelic experience um, affect you? Like, what? how did it change you? Like, benefits, uh, deficits, like, uh, if you can't talk about the experience itself? I think, I think the biggest single thing was just uh, kind of giving me a, a taste of a much more um macro perspective on life on my life on my priorities on my values and my goals in life um and it also gave me a very felt not just intellectual or cognitive but a very felt sense of connection with the natural world around me the two biggest take 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 homes I, w- I was thinking, Rob, that, that you had this experience and then you integrated it into your, your, your work life in particular because you're a filmmaker. And, uh, of course, you know, every, not many of us are filmmakers. But what I'm thinking is the way that people can uh, inter, uh, uh, bring these experiences, one way to bring it into your life is what I call the Myron Stolaroff uh, method. And his method was if you're close enough to talk to somebody, talk about psychedelics. And so one of the ways that people can uh, use your film, I think, is to watch it themselves, of course. And then at work, school, wherever you are, say, man, I just saw this greatest film. Can you believe this? And and ask about maybe Alan Watts or somebody pretty non-controversial, something you hear in the film about it, and get people talking. Say, I've got it at my house. You want to come over and see it? And I think that way... We start, uh, you know, it's it's uh, building up to this. I don't know if you've heard in England, there's a, a group here in the States that are trying to make February 20th a coming out day. Well, they're not in the States. They're actually from Costa Rica that started this. And they have hundreds of people in 40 countries that are organizing this and uh, coming out of the psychedelic closet day. And, you know, you did that by doing this film. You know, I did it by doing the podcast, but not everybody can or should, quite frankly. You know, there's people who have jobs and positions that they have to be more uh, careful about but they can at least say man i saw this cool film did you know that uh, alan watts was into psychedelics or something like that you can it's an icebreaker and i think this is a great way to do it and i just can't encourage people enough to watch this uh this film anyhow it's it's uh, a a really nice thing that you've done a, a great project and uh, i hope that uh it's just the beginning of many because uh the the talent that you have and that you've assembled the the graphics again i can't say enough about him please tell your graphic artist that he's a genius no oh, thank you lorenzo that will mean a lot to him and and it means a lot to me too thank you but do you have anything uh uh 
you'd like to, to say to people as far as, uh, you know, how, how to encourage them to promote your film? Yeah, so we were talking about the importance of talking to each other and uh, what we're finding with the screenings of journeys. Um, whenever they're happening around the world, as I said, in, in people are doing it in their local town hall or in a big 200-seat cinema or, in, you know, in their, in their apartment with their mates. What we're finding is that space after the film screened, sometimes people invite a local speaker, you know, who's relevant to psychedelics and so forth. Uh, sometimes there are even panel discussions, or as I said, sometimes it's people with their mates. The, the space that this film seems to open up after it's finished playing, I think is a really valuable one for people to have these conversations and, and somehow doing it publicly, doing it in the town hall, doing it in the cinema. It makes people um, realize they're not so alone with these experiences or with these thoughts. And, um, so I, I would really encourage anyone who's on the fence and maybe half interested to just take the plunge and get in touch and, and put on a screening in your local area because um, I think all of our communities need these discussions right now. I'm going to email the, the, some of the people that I know that are working on the February 20th coming out day because th this could be something that people use to, to come out, say, uh, take a look at this. So uh, I want to do everything I can to, to help you guys, uh, Rob, get this thing out because uh, it, it's going to help us all. Uh, the more people that learn this story, the truth of the story, uh, the, the better off this planet's going to be. Uh, at least that's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Lorenzo. I'm, I'm really grateful. Anything you can do and your listeners can do to spread the word, you know. And, thank and you. These, these guys here, there's there's a couple dozen of us here right now. And uh, uh, th these guys are, are the regulars, most of them, that I see all the time. I'm really shocked to see them here uh, uh, ditching work or whatever they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's an unusual time for us. But, uh, so yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for making that shift in time as well to accommodate me. I appreciate it. Well, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I might try to do this more regularly and, and pick up, uh, you know, get a few more people that are uh, overseas because uh, like you say, uh, you, Brexit, you guys have uh, detached from Europe. Well, uh, with, with the guy in the white house, we've detached from the whole world. So uh, we understand what it's like to be kind of alone, you know, but uh, uh, in my opinion, it's a good thing to that the American empire come to an end, but uh, not the way it's happening, but uh, we won't get into politics now. We, we don't need to do that. So, it's, it's these connections that really matter. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and uh, I, you know, I I, uh, I hope that uh, you you might be available to uh, zoom in to uh, some screenings that people are doing uh, if they can work the time out on a weekend or something like that. I think that'd be really valuable. Uh, uh, I, I'll talk to. Uh, People in Portland, I know, have had some uh, uh, Portland Psychedelic Society is pretty active, and uh, maybe they could coordinate something where you could uh, zoom into it too. So uh, that would be fantastic. Um, I've never been to the states, and any excuse to come would be very welcome. Yeah. <laughs> I've I've been to England several times. Have a lot of friends there, so uh, I lo I love England, uh, particularly the south, down in the uh, down by the moors is where I liked it. Uh, but uh, anyhow. Beautiful. We're uh, we're taking your time now, and I know you just got home from work, and I appreciate you uh, zooming in for us here today. Well, listen, everybody, I thank all of you, and uh, until next week, keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs> now, before I forget to do this, I want to recognize three of the people who worked on Journeys to the Edge of Consciousness with Rob Harper, and they are the brilliant animator Henry Lamborn, 
music by Bruce Gainsford, and the interviews were filmed by Luke Harper. Well done to all of you. I really think you did a great job. Now, uh, as I said earlier, I'm going to play a few short recordings from podcasts that I've done earlier that featured the same three speakers who are also featured in Rob's film. Now, if you go to our website, psychedelicsalon.com, and click on the link titled Podcast, you'll be taken to a page that lists all of our podcasts, uh, well over 600 of them, and each of them are on a single line with a link to the program notes for that show. To help narrow your search, you'll find a drop-down menu on the right sidebar, and it's labeled Listing of Speakers and Topics. Well, if you click it and scroll down to the listing for Alan Watts, you'll see the number 11 in parentheses next to it, and that indicates that there are 11 podcasts here in the salon featuring Alan Watts. Click it, and you'll find a listing of these programs. So right now, I'm going to play a little bit of an Alan Watts lecture from podcast number 213, which is titled, The Alchemy of LSD. And so it is with the current, uh, what we will call LSD scene, that is uh, raging through the United States. Uh, It unfortunately lacks discipline. And I'm not trying to say this in a kind of severe, authoritarian, paternalistic way but only that it would be so much more fun if it had it. In other words, when people try to express what they have seen in this kind of changed state of consciousness, they show five movies going on at once, uh, projected upon torn bedsheets, with stroboscopic lights going as fast as possible at the same time, and 11 jazz bands playing. And uh, they're going to blow their minds, baby. (laughs) And everybody else who hasn't seen this thing look around and say, well, it's a mess. I don't like the looks of it. Let's suppose that while you were very, very high on LSD, you looked into a filthy ashtray and you saw the beatific vision, which is, of course, the case because... Uh, wherever you look, if you eye, your eyes are open, you will see the face of the divine. Then you come out of your ec- ecstasy with the dirty ashtray and say to everybody, here it is. <laughs> no, there is a possibility. If you are an extraordinarily skillful painter, or even photographer, of presenting the dirty ashtray so that everybody else will see almost what you saw in it. But you will have to have a technique which will translate every grain of ash into a jewel. Because that's what you actually saw. But that requires mastery of an art. And I'm afraid uh, people think that all it's necessary to do is... uh, just throw out any old thing because under that transformed state of consciousness any old thing is the, is the works. But nobody else can see it if they haven't shared that point of view. Uh, this becomes for us in the United States an extremely important social problem. The cat is out of the bag. 
We are living in a scientific world where secrets cannot be kept. And anyone, anytime, can uh, pick up something which will short-circuit all the ancient religious techniques, yoga practice, meditation, etc., etc. This is all very embarrassing, but it will happen, not for everybody, but for a lot of people. And they will see what all those sages and Buddhas and uh, yogis and uh, prophets saw in ancient times. And it will be very clear. So, you see, you can say, look at all these people who haven't seen it. This is a temptation. Look at them all going about their business, earning money and uh, grinding it out at the bank or the insurance office or whatever it is every day, and how serious they look all about it and they don't really know it's a game. And you can, uh, you can cultivate a certain contempt for people like that. But it's very, very bad to do that. Because, of course, don't forget they have a certain contempt for you. You see, always the nice people in town who live in the best residences, uh, they know that they're nice because there are some people on the other side of the tracks who are not nice. And so at their cocktail parties, they have a lot to say about the people who are not nice because that boosts their collective ego. There would be no other way of doing it. You don't know that you're a law-abiding citizen unless there are some people who aren't. And if it's important to you to congratulate yourself on being law-abiding, you therefore have to have some criminal classes outside the pale, of course, of your immediate associates. <laughs> on the other hand, the people who are not nice, they have their parties. And they boost their collective ego by saying that they're the people who are really in Whereas these poor squares who deliver the mail faithfully and uh, who carry on what you call responsible jobs, they're just dupes. Or when they earn their money, all they do is they buy toy rocket ships with it and go roaring around and so on, and that's, they think that's pleasure. So the people who are not nice boost their collective ego in that way. Neither of them realizing that they need the other just as much as a flower needs a bee and a bee needs a flower. So you, when you see the people who you think are not in on the secret, you, if you really understand, you have to revise your opinion completely and say that the squares are the people who are really far out, because they don't even know where they started. <laughs> see, a, a, an enlightened Hindu or, or Buddhist looks at the ignorant people of this world and says, my respects. Because here I see the divine essence having altogether forgotten what it is and playing the most far out game of being completely lost. Congratulations, how far out can you get? So if you understand that, you, you don't start a war with people you might say are square. Don't challenge them. Don't bug them. Don't frighten them. The reason is not because they are immature, because they are babies, and you mustn't scare babies. It's nothing to do with that. 
You mustn't frighten them because they are doing a very far out act. They're walking uh, on a tightrope, miles up. And they've got to do that balancing act. And if you shout, they may lose their nerve. See, that's what the, we call the responsible people of the world are doing. It is an act. It's a game, just like the tightrope walker. But it's a risky one. And you can get ulcers from it. And uh, all sorts of troubles. But you must respect it. And say, congratulations on being so far out. <clears throat> this is the whole essence, you see, of seeing, if you really see into the secret, that the world doesn't contain any serious threats in it because it's all the basic you running up behind itself and saying boo to see if you can get yourself to jump out of your skin. <laughs> if you see that, be cool. And back in the 60s, Alan Watts was one of the coolest dudes around. Just to give you a little idea of how in the mix he was back then, it was on Watts's houseboat, tied up in Sausalito just across the bay from San Francisco, that Allen Ginsberg, Gary Snyder, and Alan Cohen met with Watts and Timothy Leary shortly after the first human being. And you may remember that being as the event where Timothy Leary first said, turn on, tune in, and drop out. And it was at that so-called houseboat summit that Leary was uh, first critiqued for the meme that he'd just started. And if you're wondering how Leary, uh, in hindsight, thought that he should have phrased it, well, you can go to podcast number 193 and listen to a recording of that event. But right now, let's move on to Dr. Timothy Leary himself. And if you scroll down to Timothy Leary's link on that drop-down menu on my podcast page, you'll see that there are 59 podcasts uh, so far of Dr. Leary. And for that wealth of audio treasures, uh, we also have Dennis Berry to thank. As the longtime protector of the Leary Archive, before it was acquired by the New York City Public Library, well, it was Dennis who did everything she could to keep people's interests alive in Leary's archive materials. And one of the ways that she did that was to give me digital copies of uh, many of his talks that I podcast. And today, of course, you can go to the library in New York and listen to the originals, or you can listen to them here in the Psychedelic Salon. Right now, I'm going to play a selection for you of a Timothy Leary talk from my podcast number 175, which is titled, The Intelligent Use of Psychedelic Drugs. Just north of, uh, of Athens was a place called uh, Eleusis. And you well know, know the Eleusinian mysteries for hundreds and hundreds of years were practiced there. Uh, Plato, Aristotle, most of those great philosophers went through the mysteries there. And uh, recently, uh, drug ethologists and uh, scholars like Robert Gordon Watson and Legra have uh, to told us that the key to the Eleusinian mysteries was a ceremonial plant, which is probably related to LSD. Now, we popped up, uh, we popped up through out history in France, uh, the Hashishines, Baudelaire, Gautier, um, Verlain. Uh, we popped up in England, uh, Wordsworth, um, uh, Dick Coleridge, um, Nietzsche, Nietzsche. Nietzsche was over there in Germany. You know, he was very sickly. They used to say when you went to see Nietzsche, he was like uh, going into a, a drugstore. <laughs> I wonder why I got all those crazy ideas. Uh, now, you're never going to read about the history 
You're never going to read about the history of brain exploration in the textbooks in institutions like this, tax-supported, run by academic politicians to keep young people serenely and productively stupid. You have to, you know, uh, it's an intelligence test. If you want to get smart, you have to learn how to get smart. You have to look through history and you'll find the fingerprints, the footprints, the uh, uh, vapor trails of people like us <laughs> who have been doing what we're doing here tonight, uh, trying to uh, learn how to grow and develop and make it a better planet. Um, you know, American history is filled with people who you knew how to use drugs intelligently. Robert Louis Stevenson, Edgar Allan Poe. You know, Edgar Allan Poe was actually considered in Europe to be the ultimate uh, North American writer. He's much more famous there than here. Um, the, um, coming from Harvard, as I used to, it was a source of great amusement to realize that uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who really started the American Transcendental Movement, who, went, who got kicked out of Harvard, I think it was 1838, because he went there and said, don't go to those big Unitarian and Presbyterian churches in Boston. You're going to find God within, uh, transcend this outer stuff. They didn't want him around. They kept him away for 38 years. Uh, how come he got that way? Well, it turned out that he, along with Margaret Fuller, our first great feminist woman, had gone over to Europe and hung out with uh, the Wordsworths um, and the Hashishines in um, in Paris. And it's, we have well-documented stories of how they, they turned on uh, intelligently to pursue the philosophic quest. My, my favorite Harvard uh, intellectual is a man named William James, who uh, actually founded the psychology department there. He's considered to be the father of American psychology. At the age of 13, according to his brother Henry's um, memoirs, William James was in France. Now talk about teenage punks. <laughs> At the age of 13, <laughs> William James, uh, coming from one of our top Brahmin Boston families, was experimenting with all sorts of curious and strange brain drugs in France. He later wrote the book, Varieties of Literature Experience, um, in which he said over and over again, no attempt at the metaphysical quest, no attempt to probe the philosophic wonders of the cosmos can be undertaken by those that don't have some experience with uh, uh, chemicals. In his case, it was uh, peyote nitrous oxide. So, <laughs> not to mention... Um, a man that I admire so much that you just heard talking here has just told us about the uh, role of Harvard University and the uh, CIA in the um, non-intelligent use of drugs. So uh, as I speak tonight and as we confer here tonight, we are not alone. Uh, this tradition of interquest has always been a little on the outs because the power holders, the politicians, the kings, the generals, the bishops, the popes, one thing they're all agreed on, they don't want human beings learning how to access their own brains. Because if they do that, self-reward, self-growth, self-development takes the place of uh, slavery for the hive. Now, <clears throat> this was first brought to my attention in 1961 by one of my great teachers, Aldous Huxley, who came to join us at Harvard then. Um, I remember one night, one night... <laughs> During actually it was a psilocybin session, when uh, I was kind of complaining to Alice Oxley about the slowness of the American public to catch on to the fact that you can act access and activate your own brain, and um, Alice said, "Well, you must realize, Timothy, that um, the religion of this country is totally based upon 
uh, opposition to drugs. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Timothy, haven't you read the Bible? So no, there's nothing about drugs in the Bible. He said, well, you should go back and read it again. Don't you remember Genesis, the first book of the Bible? Uh, Jehovah, you know, he's an old shepherd, Semitic, uh, macho, mafia, condominium owner. <laughs> Jehovah, just out of the, out of the hunter-gatherer stage, early paleolith God, you know, looks around and said uh, to Adam and Eve, hey, this is mine, but I'm going to let you live in this wonderful Garden of Eden. Uh, do, do whatever you want, except there are a couple of food and drug regulations. <laughs> See this tree here? The fruit of this is a controlled substance. <laughs> and you are forbidden by law to ingest, absorb in any way, taste of this, because if you do, the blinds will fall from your eyes and you'll see through good and evil and become a god like me. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Adam said, no, sir. See the fruit of this tree over here? There's also a controlled substance. Because if you eat of this, you will become immortal and a god like me. You don't want to do that, do you? Of course, Adam said, uh, no, sir. Now, it's very curious about most of the uh, organized political associations and the great, great monolithic, monotheistic uh, power religions is they're all very male-oriented and they're not very friendly to, uh, to the female sex. You know, Christianity is not very um, flattering to women. They lay all the blame on Eve, remember? That as soon as Jehovah had jumped in his squad car and gone back to headquarters, it was that naughty, hip-wiggling Eve that, that led poor straight arrow Adam. <laughs> Adam, you've got to try this. <laughs> It gets kind of comic, you know, the sirens come and the first narcotics bust in history is Jehovah. So, Aldous Huxley continued, you see that, what, what's Christianity all about? Well, um, the only son of Jehovah, Ralph, came down here uh, to sacrifice his life for our original sin. Oh, yeah? What was our original sin? Oh, the original sin was the one in the garden, I see. The original sin was the intelligent use of drugs in the Garden of Eden. Alice says, it's not going to be easy, Timothy. <laughs> now, you know, believe it or not, I, I've come here tonight loaded with scientific uh, and technological information um, to uh, discuss the intelligent use of drugs. But after listening to uh, John's talk and this incredible rapport with the audience, I realized that most everyone in this audience is using drugs more intelligently than I am tonight. <laughs> so, uh, I'm in a bad position here. Well, uh, <laughs> So, uh, is it any wonder that President Nixon once called Dr. Leary the most dangerous man in America? <laughs> now, while Leary did a significant amount of serious psychedelic research... He also let the world know that, uh, well, these drugs can sometimes be a lot of fun. And uh, even with all of the tragedy that dogged his life, he never lost his sense of humor and his sense of fun. 
Of course, uh, <laughs> at the last corporate job that I had, we considered FUN to be an acronym so that uh, when the bosses would come around and ask us how things were going, we'd say, well, this is really fun. And uh, what we meant is the acronym, which stood for Fucked Up Nightmare. <laughs> so if I ever tell you that I'm having fun, you now know what I'm saying. But uh, I digress. Uh, anyway, uh, now it's time to hear from Aldous Huxley. And while it may not be as clear to you as it is to me why these three elders were chosen to represent the beginning of what some people are now calling a psychedelic renaissance, I don't think anybody can doubt that it was, and is, Aldous Huxley who is considered the intellectual cornerstone of this new movement. And uh, hey, just now it dawned on me that <laughs> both Watts and Huxley were British, although most of their psychedelic work took place in the States. So uh, I guess that we're indebted to two Englishmen and, and an American elf for uh, launching this grand adventure in consciousness, uh, one in which you and I are right this very minute participating. So as we listen to Huxley's words right now, I think it's important to keep in mind that this talk was given over 50 years ago. But in my opinion, it could have been given last night. Today, we are faced, I think, with the approach of what may be called the ultimate revolution, the final revolution, where a man can act directly on the mind body of his fellows. Well, needless to say, some kind of direct action on human mind bodies has been going on since the beginning of time. Uh, but this has generally been uh, of a violent nature. The Techniques of terrorism have been known from time immemorial, and uh, w people have employed them with more or less uh, ingenuity, sometimes with uh, the utmost crudity, sometimes with a, a good deal of skill uh, acquired uh, by a process of trial and error, finding out what the best ways of uh, using torture, imprisonment, uh, constraints of various kinds. Uh, but uh, as um, I think it was Metternich said uh, many years ago uh, you can do everything with bayonets except sit on them uh, that if you are going to control any population for any length of time you must have some measure of consent it's exceedingly difficult to see uh, how pure terrorism can function indefinitely it can function for a fairly long time, but I think uh, sooner or later you have to bring in an element of persuasion, an element of, of getting people to consent to what is happening to them. Well, it seems to me that the, the nature of the ultimate revolution with which we are now faced is precisely this, uh, that we are in process of developing a whole series of techniques which uh, will enable the controlling oligarchy who have always existed and presumably always will exist uh, to get people actually to love their servitude uh, this is the seems to me the, the ultimate uh, in malevolent revolution shall we say and uh, this, is a, this is a problem which uh, has interested me for many years and about which I wrote uh, 30 years ago, a fable, The Brave New World, which 
is uh, essentially the account of a society making use of all the devices at that time available and some of the devices which uh, uh, I imagined to be possible uh, making use of them in order to first of all to standardize the population to iron out uh, inconvenient human dis uh, um, differences uh, to create uh, so to say mass produced uh, models of human beings arranged uh, in some kind of a scientific uh, caste system and uh, since then I have uh, con continued to be extremely interested uh, in this problem and I have noticed uh, with increasing dismay that uh, a number of the predictions which were purely fantastic when I made them 30 years ago uh, have come true or, or seem in process of coming true that a, a number of techniques about which I talked seem to be here already and that there seems to be a general movement uh, in the direction of this kind of ultimate revolution this, this method of control uh, by which uh, people can be made to enjoy a state of affairs which by any decent standard they ought not to enjoy uh, this I mean the enjoyment of, uh, of servitude well uh, this um, this process as I say has uh, gone on for over over the years and um, I become more and more interested in what is happening and here I would like uh, briefly to, uh, to compare what, the parable of Brave New World with uh, another parable which was put forth more recently uh, in George Orwell's book 1984 uh, Orwell wrote his book between I think between 45 and 48 uh, at the time when the Stalinist uh, terror regime was still in full swing and just after the uh, collapse of the Hitlerian terror regime and his book uh, which I admire greatly it's a book of very great talent and extraordinary ingenuity uh, shows uh, is so to say a projection into the future of the immediate past of what for him was the immediate past and the immediate present it was a projection into the future of a society uh, uh, where control was exercised wholly by terrorism and uh, the violent uh, attacks upon the mind body of individuals whereas uh, my own uh, book which was written in, in 1932 when there was only a, a mild dictatorship in the form of Mussolini uh, in existence was not overshadowed by the idea of terrorism and uh, I was therefore free in a way which Orwell was not free uh, to think about these other methods uh, of control the, these um, non-violent methods and my, I'm inclined to think that uh, the scientific dictatorships of the future and I think there are going to be scientific dictatorships in many parts of the world will be probably a good deal nearer to the brave new world pattern uh, than to the 
1984 pattern. They will be a good deal nearer, not because of any humanitarian qualms in the scientific dictators, but simply because the brave new world pattern is probably a good deal more efficient than the other. That if you can uh, get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, the state of servitude, the state of being, having their differences ironed out and being made uh, uh, amenable to mass production methods on the social level, if you can do this, then you have, uh, you are likely to have a much more stable and much more lasting society, uh, a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps. Uh, so that uh, my own feeling is that the 1984 picture uh, was tinged, of course, by the immediate uh, the past and the present in which uh, Orwell was living, but that the, uh, that the past and present of those years does not represent, I feel, uh, the likely trend of what is going to happen. Needless to say, we shall never get rid of terrorism. This will always uh, find its way to the surface. But I think that uh, insofar as uh, dictators become more and more scientific, more and more concerned with a technically perfect, uh, perfectly running society, uh, they will be more and more interested in the kind of techniques which uh, uh, I imagined and described from existing realities uh, in Brave New World. So that uh, uh, it seems to me then that this ultimate revolution is really not very far away, that we already the a number of the techniques for uh, bringing about this kind of control are here and it remains to be seen uh, when and where and by whom uh, they will first be applied uh, in any large scale. And first uh, let me talk about uh, a little bit about the improvement even in the techniques of, of terrorism. Uh, I think there, there have been improvements. That the the um, uh, Pavlov, after all, made some extremely profound observations, both on animals and on human beings. And he found, uh, among other things, that, uh, uh, that uh, conditioning uh, techniques applied to animals or humans in a state either of psychological or physical stress uh, sank in, so to say, very deeply into the mind-body of the creature and were extremely difficult to get rid of, that they seem to be embedded more deeply than, than other forms of conditioning. And um, this, of course, uh, this fact, I think, was discovered empirically in the past. People did make use of, uh, of many of these uh, techniques. But uh, the difference between the, the old empirical intuitive methods and our own methods is the difference between uh, a sort of hit and miss uh, uh, craftsman's point of view and the genuinely scientific point of view. I mean, I think there is a real uh, difference between ourselves and, say, the inquisitors of the 16th century. We know much more precisely what we are doing uh, than they knew, and we can extend, because of our theoretical knowledge, we can extend uh, what we are doing over a wider area with a greater assurance of, of, uh, 
of being, of producing something which really works. In this context, I would like to mention the extremely interesting chapters in Dr. William Sargent's Battle for the Mind, where he points out how intuitively some of the great religious teachers, leaders of the past, hit on the Pavlovian method. He speaks specifically of Wesley's method of producing conversions, which were essentially based upon a technique of heightening psychological stress to the limit by talking about hellfire, and so making people extremely vulnerable to suggestion, and then suddenly releasing this stress by offering hopes of heaven. And this is a very interesting chapter of showing how how completely, on purely intuitive and empirical grounds, a skilled natural psychologist, as Wesley was, could discover these Pavlovian methods. Well, as I say, we now know the reason why these techniques worked, and there is no doubt at all that we can, if we want to, carry them much further uh, than was possible in the past and of course in the uh, history of uh, recent history of, of brainwashing both as applied to uh, prisoners of war and to the uh, lower personnel within the communist party in China uh, we see that the Pavlovian methods have been applied systematically and with, with uh, evidently with extraordinary efficacy I mean I think that can be no doubt that uh, by the application of these methods a very large army of totally devoted people uh, has been created uh, the, the conditioning has been driven in so to say um, by kind of psychological iontophoresis uh, into the very depth of the uh, people's being and has got so deep that it's very difficult for it ever to be rooted out and uh, these uh, methods, I, I think, are a real refinement on the older methods of terror because they combine methods of terror with methods uh, of uh, acceptance, method that the, the person who he is subjected to a form of, of terroristic stress, uh, but uh, for the purpose of inducing a kind of voluntary quotes um, acceptance of uh, the state into, uh, the psychological state into which he has been driven and the state of affairs within which he finds himself so that as I say there has been I think a, a definite improvement shall we say uh, in the, even in the techniques of, of terrorism well then we come to um, consideration of other techniques of, of non-terroristic techniques for uh, inducing consent and for uh, inducing people to love their servitude uh, here I mean I think we can uh, I don't think I can possibly go into all of them because I don't know all of them but I mean I can mention a few of the more obvious uh, uh, methods uh, which uh, uh, can now be used and which uh, are based upon recent scientific findings uh, first of all there are the uh, methods connected with uh, straight suggestion and, uh, and hypnosis. I think we know much more 
about this subject and was, was known in the past. People, of course, have always known about suggestion and although they didn't know the word hypnosis, uh, they certainly practiced it in uh, various ways. But we uh, have, I think, a much greater knowledge of the, the subject than in the past and we, we can make use of our knowledge in ways which uh, I think the past was probably never able to make use of, make use of it. Uh, for example, one of the things we have, we now know for certain, is that there is, uh, of course, an enormous, I mean, this has been always known, a very great uh, difference between individuals in regard to their suggestibility. But we now, I think, uh, know pretty clearly the, the sort of statistical structure of a population in regard to its, uh, to its uh, suggestibility. Uh, it's very interesting uh, when you look at the, the findings in different fields. I mean, in the field of hypnosis, in the field of uh, administering placebos, for example, uh, in the field of general uh, suggestion uh, in states of drowsiness or of light sleep, you will find the same sorts of orders of magnitude continually cropping up. Uh, you will find, for example, that the um, experienced uh, hypnotists uh, will tell one uh, that the number of people, the percentage of people who can be hypnotized with the utmost facility, just like that, uh, is about 20-20%. That about uh, a corresponding number at the other end of the scale are, are very, very difficult or almost impossible to hypnotize, and that in between there lies a, uh, the, a large mass of people who can with more or less uh, difficulty uh, be hypnotized that, that uh, uh, they can gradually be if you work hard enough at it be, be got into the hypnotic state and in, in the same way one, uh, the same sort of figures crop up again for example in relation to the administration of placebos so, uh, a big experiment was carried out three or four years ago in the um, general hospital in Boston on post-operative cases where several hundred men and women uh, suffering comparable kinds of pain after serious operations uh, were allowed to, were given uh, injections whenever they asked for them, whenever the pain got bad, and the injections 50% uh, of the time were of morphia and 50% of the time were of distilled water. And about 20% of, of those uh, who uh, went through the experiment about 20% of them got just as much relief from the distilled waters from the morphia about 20% got no relief from the distilled water and in between were those who got some relief or got relief uh, occasionally so here again we see uh, an, an, uh, the same sort of, uh, of distribution and similarly with regard to uh, what in Brave New World I call hypnopedia which is the sleep teaching uh, I was talking not long ago to a man who manufactures uh, records uh, which people can listen to in the, in, during the light part of sleep. I mean, these are records for, for getting rich, for sexual satisfaction, for uh, <laughs> confidence in salesmanship and so on. And uh, he, he said it's uh, very interesting that uh, uh, he... Uh, 
he, these are the records are sold on a money back basis and he says that uh, there is regularly between 15 and 20 percent of people who write indignantly saying the records don't work at all and uh, he sends the money back at once uh, there are, on the other hand there are some uh, what over 20 percent who write enthusiastically, saying they're now much richer, their sexual life is much better, etc., etc. <laughs> and uh, these, of course, are, are the dream clients, and they buy more of these records. And then in between are those who complain they're not getting much results, and they have to be, have letters written to them saying, well, go persist, my dear, go on, and you'll get there, and they generally... <laughs> they generally do get results in the long run. Well, as I say, this... Uh, on the basis of this, I think we see quite clearly that uh, the uh, human populations can be categorized according to their suggestibility fairly clearly. I, I suspect very strongly that this 20% is the same in all these, uh, these cases. And I suspect also that it would not be at all difficult uh, to recognize in very early childhood who were the, those who were extremely suggestible, who were those who were extremely unsuggestible, and who were those who uh, uh, occupied the intermediate space. Quite clearly, if everybody were extremely unsuggestible, um, organized society would be quite impossible. Uh, and if everybody were extremely suggestible, then... Um, uh, dictatorship would be absolutely inevitable. I mean, it's very fortunate we have people who are moderately suggestible in the majority and who therefore preserve us from dictatorship but do permit uh, uh, organized society to, uh, to be formed. But uh, once given the fact that there are these 20% of highly suggestible people, it becomes quite clear that this is a matter of enormous political importance. Uh, for example, uh, any demagogue who is able to get hold of a, a large number of these 20% of suggestible people and to organize them is really in a position to overthrow any government in any country. And I mean, I, I think this, uh, uh, after all, we've had the most incredible uh, example in recent years of what can be done by efficient methods of, uh, of uh, suggestion and persuasion uh, in the form of Hitler. Uh, anybody who's uh, read, for example, Bullock's Life of Hitler uh, comes forth from this with a, a sort of horrified admiration for this infernal genius who, who really understood human weaknesses, I think, almost better than anybody, and who uh, exploited them with all the resources then available. I mean, he knew everything. I mean, for example, he knew intuitively uh, this uh, Pavlovian truth that... Uh, uh, conditioning installed in a state of stress or fatigue uh, it goes much deeper than conditioning installed at other times. This was why all his big speeches were organized at night. He speaks of this quite frankly, of course, in Mein Kampf. He says this was done solely because people are tired at night and therefore are much less uh, capable of resisting persuasion than they would be during the day. And uh, we see in all his uh, Techniques. He he was using. Uh, he, he had discovered intuitively and by uh, trial and error great many of the of the weaknesses which we now know about on a, in a sort of scientific way. I think much more clearly than he does uh, than he did. 
Uh, but uh, the fact remains that uh, this differential suggestibility, uh, this uh, susceptibility to uh, hypnosis, I do think uh, has, is something which has to be considered very uh, carefully in relation to any uh, kind of thought about uh, um, democratic uh, government. I mean, if there are 20% of the people who can really be suggested into believing almost anything, as evidently they can be, uh, then we have to take uh, extremely uh, careful steps to prevent the uh, rise of demagogues who will uh, drive them on into uh, extreme positions and then organize them into very, very dangerous uh, uh, armies, private armies, which may overthrow the overthrow the government. Well, uh, this, as I say, is, is uh, 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 in this field of, of pure persuasion. I think we uh, we do know much more than we did in the past, and obviously we now have uh, uh, mechanisms for multiplying the demagogue's voice and image uh, in a quite hallucinatory way. I mean, the television and the radio. Hitler was making enormous use of the radio. He could speak to millions of people simultaneously. Uh, I mean, this, this alone, of course, is, uh, creates an enormous gulf between the modern and the ancient demagogue. And the ancient demagogue could only uh, appeal to as many people as his voice could reach by the yelling at, the, um, at his utmost, but were the modern demagogue can touch literally millions at a time and, and of course with his, the multiplication of his image he can produce this kind of hallucinatory effect which uh, uh, is of, of enormous uh, uh, hypnotic and uh, suggest, uh, suggestive importance but then there are, there are various other methods which one can think of which uh, uh, have, thank heaven, as yet not been used, but which obviously could be used. Uh, there is, for example, the uh, pharmacological method. This, this was one of the things I, I talked about in, in Brave New World. I, I invented a hypothetical drug called Soma, which, of course, could not exist as it stood there because it was simultaneously a stimulant, a narcotic, and a hallucinogen, which seems unlikely in one substance. But the point is that in several, if you applied several different substances, you could get almost all these results even now. Uh, and the really interesting thing about the new chemical substances, the new mind-changing drugs, is this, that whereas, uh, if you look back into history, it's clear that man has always uh, had a, a hankering after mind-changing chemicals, he has always desired to take holidays from himself. Uh, but the, uh, and this is a, the most extraordinary fact of all, is that every naturally occurring stimulant, narcotic, sedative, or hallucinogen was discovered uh, in before the dawn of history. I don't think uh, there is one single one of these naturally occurring ones which... Um, modern science has discovered modern science of course has discovered better ways of extracting the active principles from these drugs and of course has discovered numerous uh, ways of synthesizing new substances of extreme power but the, uh, the actual discovery of these naturally occurring things was made by primitive men goodness knows how many centuries ago 
there is, for example, uh, in the uh, underneath the uh, lake dwellings, um, the uh, early Neolithic lake dwellings, which have been dug up in, the, uh, in Switzerland, we find poppy heads, which looks as though people were already using this most ancient uh, and powerful and most dangerous of narcotics, uh, even in the days before the rise of agriculture, so that man was apparently a dope egg addict before he was a farmer, which is a, <laughs> a, a, a very, very curious comment on human nature. Uh, but um, the difference, as I say, between the ancient mind changers, the traditional mind changers, and these new substances is that they were extremely harmful, and the new ones are not. I mean, even the permissible mind changer, alcohol is not entirely harmless, as people may have noticed, uh, and uh, the, um, the other ones, the non-permissible ones, such as opium and cocaine, uh, opium and all its derivatives, are very harmful indeed. Uh, they, they rapidly produce addiction, and... Uh, and in some cases uh, lead at an extraordinary rate to uh, physical degeneration and death. Um, whereas these, these new substances, uh, this is really very extraordinary, the, that a number of these new mind-changing substances uh, can produce enormous revolutions within the mental side of our being, and yet uh, do almost nothing to the physiological side. I mean, you can have a, an enormous um, revolution, for example, with um, LSD-25 or with uh, the newly synthesized drug uh, psilocybin, which is the active principle of the Mexican sacred mushroom. Uh, you can have this enormous uh, mental revolution with no more physiological revolution than you would get from drinking two cocktails. Uh, and, and this is a really a most extraordinary fact. And uh, uh, it is, of course, true that uh, pharmacologists are producing a great many wonder drugs which, uh, where the cure is almost worse than the disease. Uh, every uh, new edition of medical textbooks contains a, a longer and longer chapter on what are called iatrogenic diseases, that is to say diseases caused by doctors. Uh, and, <laughs> The, uh, and this is quite true uh, that the many of the wonder drugs are uh, extremely dangerous. I mean, they, they can produce extraordinary effects, and in critical conditions, they should certainly be used, but they should be used with the utmost caution. But there, there is a, evidently a whole class of drugs affecting the uh, central nervous system which can produce enormous uh, changes in. Uh, in sedation, in euphoria, in uh, energizing the whole mental process uh, without uh, doing any perceptible harm to the body. And in this sense, uh, this represents, it seems to me, the most extraordinary revolution that it's it, uh, uh, in the hands of a, uh, of a dictator or uh, these substances of one kind or another could be uh, used uh, in the most um, well with complete uh, first of all with, with complete harmlessness uh, and uh, the result would be that uh, um, I mean you can imagine a, 
a euphoric which would make people thoroughly happy even in the most abominable circumstances. I mean, the, these things are possible. I mean, this is the extraordinary thing. I mean, after all, this has even been true with the crude oil drugs. I mean, as a houseman years ago remarked, uh, apropos of Milton's Paradise Lost, uh, he says, and beer does more than Milton can to justify God's ways to men. Uh, and beer is, of course, an extremely crude drug uh, compared with these ones. And uh, you can certainly say that some of the psychic energizers and the new hallucinants can do incomparably more than Milton and all the theologians combined could possibly do to make uh, the terrifying mystery of our existence seem more tolerable than it does. Uh, so that here I think one has a, a, an enormous uh, area in which the, uh, the ultimate revolution could function very well indeed. Uh, an area in which uh, a great deal of control could be used by, not through terror, but through making life seem much more enjoyable than it normally does. Uh, enjoyable to the point where, as I've said before, uh, human beings uh, come to love a state of things which by any reasonable and decent human standard they ought not to love. And this, I think, uh, is perfectly possible. And then, again, in the case of these very strange substances like psilocybin and lysergic acid, I think there's a great deal to be said for, for doing what uh, William James talked about, for getting people to realize that the their ordinary sort of common sense view of the world is not the only view that uh, the universe they inhabit is not the only possible universe and that there are other very strange universes which some people spontaneously inhabit I mean a man like William Blake obviously inhabits an extremely different universe from uh, that which most people inhabit and I, I think it's probably very uh, wholesome for people to uh, to be permitted to realize this fact, to perceive that the, uh, the world of the mind is immensely large and that there are these very strange and extraordinary areas in them. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, now it's your turn to explore those uncharted expanses of mind. I wish you fair winds and calm seas. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.